Would you take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 11, and our text this morning will be verses 17 through verse 27. John 11, 17 through 27. This is where Jesus delivers one of his uh, seven I am statements, and specifically that he is the resurrection and the life. Charles Spurgeon, commenting on this passage, asks this question, which in many ways identifies a theme that we should think about as we look at this passage. Spurgeon asks, have we grasped as yet a tenth of our Lord's full meaning in many of his sayings of love? When he is talking of bright and sparkling gems of benediction, we are thinking of common petals in the brook of mercy. When he speaks of stars and heavenly crowns, we think of sparks and childish kernels of fading flowers. What Spurgeon is saying is so oftentimes what Christ holds before us are those of gems, but what we see are those things of the pebbles and brooks. I find it interesting that that is how oftentimes we approach life as Christians. We have been given the most valuable gem that is of eternal life. Yet so often it's taken for granted as just merely an ordinary pebble in our lives. I think Spurgeon is right that we oftentimes see the mundane rather than seeing the beauty and glory of God in our lives. And why does this happen? It happens when we become consumed and focused on the temporal things in life rather than having an eternal perspective in living life. In other words, we look at the pebble rather than the gem. It's not to say that temporal concerns, joys of life, or the pain and suffering is insignificant because those are significant things in our life. Sometimes it can be very significant, but it is to consider how we view things when we go through them, how we view life as a total, and trusting that God is working through all things for His glory and our good. And so to view life looking at the gems that we have been given in Christ is living eternal life now rather than to be consumed with the cares and concerns of this temporal world. It's to view the gems rather than the pebbles. You think of a child at Christmas. We just celebrated Christmas this last month. You give a child a present. They open the present, and what do they so often do? Play with the box that the present came in. And they're consumed with the box rather than this item that you bought them that is expensive and costs you something to give them. And so when we look at this passage, we see Jesus teaches Martha. It will involve Martha and Jesus in a conversation they have. It. He teaches her a very important lesson. Because as she approaches Jesus, she is viewing things through the lens of suffering and Jesus doesn't condemn her perspective. He just rather gives her a better perspective, a perspective that we need. And Jesus is going to show us how things are ultimately for his glory, including the strengthening of a faith. In fact, as you read the account of the death of Lazarus and the raising of Lazarus, Jesus says in chapter 11, verse 4, 
This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. In other words, all the suffering that takes place, the death of Lazarus itself that leads Jesus to weep, Jesus tells us it's for God's glory. And that teaches us something about suffering that we face in this life. This teaches us something about the joys we face in life, that ultimately there's an ultimate purpose behind it. And it's one that is unseen to us often, but we have God's word that tells us it is for God's glory. We see how comfort is found ultimately in Christ in this passage and how apart from him, living the eternal life is impossible. Let's hear the word of God, beginning in verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into this world. This is the word of God, and what a comfort it is for those that rest in Christ to know that though we die, yet shall we live. You notice verse 17 gives us some information that sets the context. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Jesus had been uh, warned that Lazarus was very sick, that Lazarus, in fact, was dying Rather than Jesus rushing to Lazarus' side to see him, Jesus holds back. And as you see, Jesus just stays away so that Lazarus dies. And so this verse may seem like nothing more than just general information that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. It's actually a a significant part of the verse. This part of the verse in, in verse 39 It sets forth the magnitude of the coming miracle itself. Verse 39, Jesus said, Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. So what's the the significance that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days? It emphasizes a fact that we already know. Lazarus is dead. But it's significant to note the four days. Because many Jews of that time held a tradition and believed that when a person dies, that the spirit would oftentimes hover over the body for about three days. And that when the spirit saw that the body was beginning to decompose, which would result in an odor, the spirit would then depart and death at that point was irreversible. That was, that was what many Jews held in the first century. 
And now obviously Jesus did not believe this, for when a person dies, they die. But it's not hard to imagine why that was a tradition during the first century. You can just simply imagine someone is perceived to be past. It seems like everything, the vital signs are gone, but without the modern technology that we have today to detect heartbeats and stuff and our knowledge of medical science that we have today, it wouldn't be hard to see how someone could be thought to have been dead and then all of a sudden they catch their breath or something and they pop out of it. In fact, just this last week, when I was in Uganda, I was told of a story of the villagers were referring to this woman that just kept dying and then would resurrect. Well, what they didn't realize is that she would have a seizure that rendered her unconscious, and she would be unconscious for a while and then would come back up. And they don't have the medical technology that we do in the West, in this village. And so you can imagine why that belief came around, that, that, that if there's someone is... Uh, asleep, or it seems like they're dead, they could come back. And so that was a, a view they had. So Jesus is intentionally waiting four days so that there would be no question about what takes place, so that when he raises Lazarus, no one could say, well, his spirit was just hovering over the top of him, and it was, it was the spirit there. And so this is intentional so that the crowd that we'll be introduced to in verse 19 cannot dismiss what takes place. They would have to recognize this was an undeniable miracle of resurrection. And so verse 18, we read this, another bit of information that seems almost superfluous but is actually crucial to understanding the story. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. And so then we have some significant information here. It shows us, and the intention of verse 18 specifically, that Bethany was near Jerusalem and is just two miles off, is that Jesus and his disciples are entering into hostile territory. They're, they're just merely two miles from the place that is seeking the life of Jesus. In fact, in verse 8 of the same chapter, the disciples said to Jesus, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? In other words, the mention of Jerusalem is showing us that Christ is going to the place where they are going to crucify him. In just the next chapter, a group of Greeks come to greet Jesus, and when, he, when they greet Jesus, that signals to him that his hour has come, that he is about ready to be crucified. And this is part of that plan. From chapter 5, verse 16, in the Gospel of John, you see a turning toward, against Jesus of where they start to seek to kill him. Uh, but Jesus continually says, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. But then he sets his eyes towards Jerusalem and begins to walk towards his death. And so it's significant that he is going to raise a man from the dead prior to his own death. Many that are in this crowd here will witness the miracle and some that will witness this miracle are the very ones that will want Jesus' life. 
I think it's interesting that he does this prior to his death and as he's near Jerusalem and his disciples recognize that he is going to be, uh, that he's desired to be killed in Jerusalem. I think he does this in many ways for his disciples to show his power over death and his disciples still yet don't get it. In our verses here where we read of the many Jews coming to console Martha and Mary, there's no hint of anything negative. In fact, we're just given the opposite impression. The crowd comes with a purpose, and it's to console Mary and Martha. They come to provide comfort, to encourage them, to cheer them up. And that's why they're they're coming. They're coming to do something nice, to show an act of compassion. It also shows us that this family was prominent, a family that was wealthy. Mary and Martha were certainly a wealthy family. You see that with the expensive perfume that they use on Jesus. And this funeral procession that was taking place would have been several days. It would have been a drawn-out process, not of the burial, but of the process of grieving. And so what we see is they're coming to console them. It it tells us the the emotional state of Mary and Martha. They just lost their brothers. So this is a very emotionally and dramatic scene that's taking place. And Martha catches word that Jesus is near. And so verse 20, So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And so I want you to see this picture here. Martha gets up to go greet Jesus, but Mary is seen as sitting. And so what Martha does is is actually unusual. This is something that's odd that, that someone in grieving and mourning would not have done. She is breaking tradition. So in, in many ways, it's, it's seen as a sign of respect for Jesus. And Jesus, as as the teacher, would traditionally have gone to the house to see the family. But when a person died during this time, uh, they would be buried that day because they didn't they didn't embalm them. They put they put fragrance on the body to help quench the smell or quench the smell. You think of Ananias and Sapphira; they were buried that day. And after the burial, the women would depart for home and begin the thirty day grieving period. And the first seven days were the most intense. And so they're in that seven day of intensity of grieving for their lost brother. And here's what they would do. They would sit. They would sit in their mourning and people would come to them. They would not go to other people. Now, this is something we do today, is if you lose a lost loved one, you're, you're usually not going out to visit other people. They're coming to you. And Mary is just simply doing what is normal in the grieving process as she sits in the home versus Martha, who goes out. In fact, you think of examples of this sitting in Scripture. When Job lost everything, what did he do? He sat in mourning. When Naomi lost her family, what did she do? She sat in mourning. One rabbi wrote this, sitting is the place of mourning. And so Mary is mourning, and Martha breaks custom to go to Jesus. 
She sees that Jesus is coming, and she finds her only solace, her only comfort in going to Jesus. She cannot wait in this moment of distress and grieving to get to Jesus. This is the typical picture of Martha too, isn't it? Sitting at Jesus' feet. So verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. How do we view Martha's words? She's not rebuking Jesus. She's not trying to correct Jesus. Let me just back up. It was actually Mary, excuse me, that was sitting at Jesus' feet. Martha was the one that was in the kitchen. But she's not rebuking Jesus. These are words of regret, not blame. These are words of sadness. And we also must recognize that she says this to Jesus after days of tension, after stress and in anticipation, inviting Jesus to come out. She has incredible sorrow. She has incredible letdown. Yet in these words, there is faith. And this is an expression of faith. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She is simply stating that if Christ had been there, he could have prevented the death. But Jesus had done what? As we already saw. Instead of going there immediately when he found out that Lazarus was sick, he stayed back. And he said, this is for God's glory. Do you think Jesus was unaware of the sorrow that the family would face? Was Jesus unaware of the, the pain that they would have in losing their brother? It, it's not like that people just came back from the dead when they died. When people died, they died. They might have had certain customs, but those, those were very rare instances. So Jesus not being there, their brother is dead. In many ways, they have lost all hope of seeing him again. Could it be that not only was it for God's glory, but it also led to a deeper trial of faith for both Martha and her family and for the disciples that are witnessing all of this? In, in this event, the gem of the whole entire thing is God's glory. The gem is a, is a deeper level of faith, and, and the pebble, and it was Lazarus being healed, preventing his death. In other words, if Jesus had prevented his death, that would have been a far lesser event taking place than Jesus raising him from the dead. We have to see something about this. If you're suffering through trial, and maybe even this morning, as we look at this story, in our suffering, do we focus on the pebbles? Or do we focus on the gem? Now, Jesus doesn't promise to alleviate things, but he, changes, he does show us that we can change our perspective of how we view turmoil and suffering. Look at Martha, what she says. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. That's an amazing admission of faith because when she says, but even now, 
Meaning, in other words, we're past that period of time where something can be changed, but I know that even now at this point, four days later, when my brother is, is sick is, or is, is beginning to decompose, I know that now, whatever you ask from God... Now, Martha, in my view, is not suggesting that Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. In fact, verse 39 seems to rule out the interpretation where she says, as Jesus is going to go to the tomb and says, take away the stone, and you might think that at that point after the conversation she has with, that Jesus has with her, that she might realize what he's doing, but she, she doesn't. She says, don't roll away the tomb because by now at this point, his body is going to smell. And so she says this, it's not that she's expecting him to raise him from the dead, it's just simply she is re-emphasizing her faith and confidence in Jesus in light of his relationship to the Father. Martha places her faith in the one who, who God will give whatever he asks. She is showing trust in Jesus, it's not that she's expecting Jesus to, to raise him from the dead. At this moment, she is just simply trusting in Jesus. It's as if she is, she is asking or saying to Jesus, it's, it's in your hands, Jesus. I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. This is very similar to what Mary, Jesus' mother, said to Jesus in Cana. When they ran out of wine, what did Mary say of G to, to, uh, to the servants there? Do whatever he tells you. Martha comes to Jesus and bears her, her soul to him of the loss of her brother. And while she may be viewing the pebbles, she still demonstrates trust and faith. And she takes her issue to Jesus. When we're facing trials in life, where do we go? Do you go to Jesus in faith, knowing that whatever his will is best? Do you go to him knowing only he can change our perspective? Let me just simply ask it this way. You have the contrast between Mary and Martha. When we're facing trials in this life, are we Mary sitting, mourning, or are we Martha running to the feet of Jesus? Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now, because you know what happens in this story, you know that Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. We know that he, what he means, because we've read ahead when he says, your, your brother will rise again. But what would these words have meant to Martha when she heard them? Notice a couple things about the text that it states here. Your brother will rise again. So Jesus states something that he is certain is going to happen. And the certainty is this will happen. He says something that is in the future that is guaranteed to happen. Lazarus is going to rise again. What would that have sounded like to her? What would that have sounded like to the many Jews that were going there to console her? 
What would these words and phrases, what would they have meant to her? Let me ask you this. What things had, been, had, had Martha and Mary been hearing for the last four days? I think we have to understand that what Jesus is saying to her are words that she probably would have already heard. In this culture that took mourning so seriously and made consoling a, a natural and expected part of society, how many times do you think Martha had heard similar words to what Jesus had already spoken? Martha, I know you're sad, but your brother will rise again. It sounded like what everyone else had told her. It might have even fell short of the comfort she was looking for. And she, she takes his words, as we will see in the conversation, as nothing more than solace in the common platitudes that one would hear in these situations. Think about it when you go to visit someone uh, to comfort them in, in their own loss. What is it that you often say to them? You say what we believe is true. They will rise again. You will be reunited with them. You will say something to the effect, they are in heaven. And we rejoice that they're in heaven. Are those true words? Absolutely. That's what we're expected to say. And that's in many ways what Jesus seems to be saying. And I, I want you to notice what Jesus is doing in saying this. He is saying what many others would have said. He's doing what others would have been doing as well. And he does not immediately fix the problem or outright explain what he's going to do. His words are actually ambiguous. He's going to rise again. He will rise again. And unless you're a Sadducee, if you were a Jewish person, you would say, Amen, he will rise again. One commentator says he continues to delay because before manifesting his glory, he seeks to unite his disciples to himself on a deeper level than can be achieved by removing their sorrow over Lazarus. In other words, as Jesus waits for four days, as Jesus speaks to Martha and uses this language here, doesn't explicitly say what he's going to do, he's actually taking her to a deeper level of faith. So he has a conversation with her, directing and guiding her with a purpose in mind. He is building Martha's faith before relieving the pain. He allows her to stay in the pain of loss as he is working faith in her. There, there are times in our lives in which we experience pain, and it may be that our faith is strengthened through it. In fact, usually that is when our faith is strengthened, is through pain, because that's where we find us relying on the Lord. And it's through those trials of faith that our faith grows to a deeper level so often. And we would say we don't want the pain, we don't want the suffering, but the outcome actually is what we do want. The outcome is what we pray for when we are praying for a deeper level of faith. We don't want to go through the process of getting to that deeper level of faith. And Jesus here is actually taking her through the suffering and the pain and the whole family for that very purpose. So we want the outcome of the, the, the deeper faith. We don't want the crawling through the mud. But that's exactly what Jesus is, is doing. 
So how do we view the gems rather than the pebbles? Because our faith grows when circumstances place us at the mercy of our Savior. And these circumstances places Martha right at the feet of Jesus. Verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day, which confirms that she understood what Jesus was saying, not as an immediate resurrection, but rather just Jesus is giving a proper theology. So when she says, I know, in many ways it's, it's loaded with disappointment that there's not going to be that immediate fix. Jesus was referring to an immediate resurrection, and Martha probably, has, who, who has heard this and these type of statements, limits, limits Jesus' words to a future and distant event rather than something now. But there's something that we have to recognize and we have to applaud in Martha. She has a correct theology. As I already mentioned, the Sadducees did not believe in a future resurrection. But Martha did. She's orthodox. She, she correctly understands resurrection and un, understands the scriptures. Psalm 49, verse 15, But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. He will receive me. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and to some to shame and everlasting contempt. She knew her word of God. She knew the teaching of the resurrection. And so she has a good and correct theology, but she limits Jesus Jesus to theology and not to practice. For theology does not correspond to practice. And this is common for people of good theology is sometimes it just remains just that. Theology rather than permeating through the character of the person. And so she agrees on the theology but does not see Jesus as the embodiment of her theology as Jesus himself will identify himself. She acknowledges the truth of what Jesus said, but does not connect the necessary faith in Jesus that makes such a theology even possible. And so she limits Jesus to just theory rather than practice. To quote Spurgeon again, when he is talking of bright and sparkling gems of benediction, we are thinking of common pebbles in the brook of mercy. She doesn't see the beauty of what Jesus is saying. So then Jesus reigns Martha in and changes her perspective rather than to look to a future comfort. Jesus pulls Martha to the here and now after she says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And she says, in the resurrection on the last day. And then Jesus says these words, I am the resurrection and the life. What, what does this mean? And why does he say it? Jesus' statement means that apart from him, there is no resurrection. There is no life. In other words, her, her whole entire theology of resurrection is embodied in Christ himself. And Jesus is so identified but with, with both life and resurrection that neither can exist apart from him. 
And so as he makes this theological point that she had confirmed, he focuses it in on himself. So for Martha, this means that her attention is to move from an abstract idea of something that will happen in the future to rather a personalized belief in Christ who alone can provide life and resurrection. Now notice how Jesus defines both resurrection and life with two paradoxical statements. Resurrection is this, whoever believes in me though he die, yet shall he live. So physical death is not the final word. And life is this, is everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So, so you see resurrection is though, that though he die, yet shall he live. The idea of life is everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. There's something about this that we have to take note of is that if we lose a lost loved one and we take this passage to think that Jesus is going to raise them from the dead, that's not the point. He will in the final resurrection, as Martha says. The point that Jesus makes is this that we have to see. Eternal life for the follower of Christ is not when we die. Eternal life for the follower of Christ is right now. It's something that's present. Resurrection is not just merely something in the future. Resurrection is not just something that happens on the last day, but it is an event that has already began in Christ and is a present reality. Life and resurrection eternal life and resurrection is not something we push off to the future. If it was just something off to the future, we miss the beauty of it in the present reality of our life at this very moment. Jesus said this in, in verse 25 of John chapter 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now notice what Jesus is speaking of. The dead, the spiritually dead, they'll hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear it will live. That is speaking of a, a current resurrection in Christ. This is for whoever believes. And by the way, when you find the words and the phrase, whosoever believes in the Gospel of John, that is a, in the Greek a participle, which actually literally translated means this, the believing ones. It's not speaking of a hypothetical universal belief it is speaking of specific people that have been changed by the Spirit of God and have been born again. Those are the believing ones that God has done an internal work in them that they live and have been resurrected in Christ. And so resurrection is now, and it has to be, because if you're born in Adam, you have been born into death. But because of a new birth, you're brought into Christ, the second Adam, and you have a new life. You're born again. What is lost in Adam in death is regained in Christ. This is why we see the importance of these words that I am the resurrection and the life. 
Jesus is telling us this is presently, right now, a reality in the life of those that follow. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This is the greatest comfort Martha could ever receive, and this is the greatest news we could ever have, and this is the greatest perspective and life-changing perspective we can have on how we live life right now. It means that if you are in Christ, your life has eternally changed at the moment that you were regenerated and trusted in Christ. The spiritually dead hear His voice now, You think of in this story here, the spiritual dead that hear his voice now, you could say, is Martha. Yet those in the grave that will come forth at a later date would be Lazarus. In many ways, what Jesus does in organizing all of this that takes place in his providence is to provide a parable that he can explain. So let, let's, let's begin to apply this. The, the entire event takes place for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So the, the, the ultimate purpose behind all that takes place, the entire event, all of the suffering, all of the turmoil, all of the mourning, the tears, the crying, the sadness, uh, the, the anxieties, all of those things that came with this event were for the singular purpose of the glory of God. If we as professing Christians limit eternal life to the grave, then we place a boundary around the one who gives it and we miss the glory that he receives in it. In other words, as we look at things in this life, we recognize all things are working for God's glory, even our suffering. Now, there's a true statement, eternal life is fully realized when we die. And our day, our, one day our bodies will be raised to receive the glorious incorruptible bodies like Jesus. Yet if we are born again, we are born of imperishable seed, and that is right now. In fact, we see this throughout Scripture in many places. Think of how in Romans, Paul demonstrates this through the picture of baptism. In, John, in Romans chapter 6, verse 3, we read this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him in baptism, into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. It's an interesting picture of our baptism. It's a historical fact looking back to our union with Christ in resurrection. Or think about what Paul says in Ephesians. 
about how Christ has been raised to the heavenly places and He's seated at the right hand of God and you think, what a wonderful comfort that Christ is sovereign over all of the universe as ruling at the right hand of the Father and you think that's wonderful for us to know that Christ is there. But then Paul goes on to say, don't limit it to just Christ because he says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul doesn't say that that's a future event. He says we've been raised now with Christ in a resurrection like his. One commentator says the truth is far too wondrous for us to fully understand. But the basic and obvious reality of it is that we died with Christ in order that we might have life through him and live like him. When we begin to understand that eternal life is lived now, we then begin to live with the view of God's glory, not as an abstract future, but we will view life with heaven in sight as a present reality, knowing that as we trudge through the mud of life, and through this life God is being glorified Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Not, I will be, or I will be for a time. Jesus says, I am, and he forever will be. Apart from Jesus, there is no life. There is no resurrection. There is only the wrath of God from which there is no escape. And even in this reality, God is still glorified in meting out his perfect justice and eternal wrath. Jesus asks this question of Martha after he states these facts. He asks her, do you believe this? Jesus asks Martha a question. Do you believe this? When he says, I am the resurrection and the life, and though you, though you die, yet shall you live. What do you believe this morning? Do you believe what Jesus says? Is it just theology? Or do we live in light of it? Is it the gems versus the pebbles? Is it theory or is it practice? Is it abstract or is it a reality? Jesus focuses Martha's attention away from the loss of her brother and centers her attention on himself. In grieving, our grieving doesn't go away, but in it do you focus in on Jesus. That is moving from the temporal living to eternal living. Do you believe this? Jesus does believe Jesus could have healed Lazarus. She believed that Jesus had a closeness with the Father. She believed in a general resurrection of the dead, but when then Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, though you die, yet shall you live. He asks her, do you believe this? Her answer is, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into this world. And in this, she confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is of divine descent and the fulfillment of Scripture. She sees Jesus as a man and recognizes that he is God. Do you believe this? What a tremendous lesson for Martha. 
But let me say this, is let us not leave this place without considering the implications for us in the here and now. Because we do live in times where the world seems to be chaotic, much like their world. We do experience death. Does the great I am give you certainty? Does the great I am give you assurance? Is he your rock and your only stability that you need? Does he give you the perspective of eternal life that gets you through the difficult times and changes your perspective that perhaps even in your suffering there is something greater taking place for God's glory and for the strengthening of your faith? Let us look to the one that says, I am the resurrection and the life, and let us live our lives now with the joy of knowing that in Christ our eternal life and resurrection is complete. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the truth of the gospel, that in him we have life, that we have salvation everlasting. That, Father, though we will one day breathe our last, we will awake into your arms eternity and the blessed state that we will join the chorus of worshipers singing holy, holy, holy. But Father, may our hearts do that now and exult in your glory as we recognize that in Christ we are resurrected even now. It's in his name we pray. Amen.